The Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Diego ready to go with a first pitch on its way. Swing and a line drive left side of the infield. Fielded by Wendell. He made the catch. Rays win. Rays win. Rays win. And they're on their way to the American League Championship Series as they knock off the New York Yankees 2-1. Coming up, we'll recap the action from this past week, take a look around Major League Baseball, and sit down for in-depth interviews with the biggest names in the game. Just a swing and a drive, hit well in the air towards right. Mookie Betts going back to the wall. Gone! A first-inning homer for Randy Arozarena, number 10 of the postseason. It's one nothing Rays. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Good afternoon. Happy Father's Day. Today we chat with Ryan Thompson about the great relationship he has with his dad. We'll chat with Dave and Andy about certainly a tough week gone by for Tampa Bay. We'll also look at a terrific start to the year with outfield prospect Garrett Whitley. Plus, we have a great Father's Day story with bullpen coach Dan Borowski and daughter Sarah. We continue on this week in race baseball, and on this Father's Day, we have Ryan Thompson, who obviously has had a tremendous relationship with his dad, and I'm sure you want to send that message out as your dad is in Seattle with you. Absolutely. My dad is everything to me in my life and in my baseball career. This was not just my dream. This was his dream, and we got to share that together. And all the way since me being probably eight years old, it was uh, kind of our mission. So, you know, it was really special when I got drafted. I was able to be with him the moment my name got called, and um, he was down here when I made my debut. You know, it was 2020. He wasn't able to be here physically in the stadium, but he was right outside across the street. He couldn't miss it. So um, this whole journey we've shared together, and he means he means the world to me, and so happy that he's here today. So being uh, in Seattle on the West Coast on Father's Day weekend, how special is that to you? I'm glad you asked that because my passion and my love for baseball started with the Seattle Mariners. I was a young kid, and my dad wanted me to to fall in love with the game and he got me involved in baseball cards and we we started making a trip every summer we would go one weekend we'd go up to seattle and stay for a whole series and stay in a try to stay in whatever fancy hotel we could afford and we'd go to the games try to get autographs and baseballs and start learning all the players i would fill out the scorecard every every game and try to learn all the stats and all the stuff like that and that really facilitated my love for the game, and I've been a huge Mariners fan since I was a little kid, and it was always my dream, obviously, to make it to the big leagues, but even more than that, to play at Safeco Field now, T-Mobile Park, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a special moment for me when I stand on that on that mound that we've been fans to for so long and be able to know that my dad's in, in, the, in the stands. So you obviously had some really good memories going there. Is there any memory you have on the base of, of what you saw on the field, or is it more just the time you spent with Dad? There's one memory that I'm sure a lot of people, especially in Seattle, they know. Um, I was at the game where Ichiro hit the walk-off against uh, Mariano, and that was wild. That was a lot of fun. Um, but most of my memories actually come from off the field. We, I, I feel like I have a, I have a special, like, understanding of the fans because I was a crazy fan when I was a little kid and I did a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have but it was a lot of fun we used to try to figure out where the teams were staying in their hotels and we'd go and you know wait and try to get their autographs and stuff and so I have a lot of memories at a lot of the hotels in Seattle that we would go and meet a lot of the Yankee players a lot of the Red Sox players I got 
Derek Jeter's autograph a couple times, uh, Manny Ramirez, David Ortiz, Mariano Rivera. I mean, the list goes on of, of players. And I met, I met a handful of guys that were amazing. John Flaherty was potentially the nicest player I've ever met um, that really – it's really helped me being a professional baseball player now on how to respond to fans, how to act. And, you know, it's, it's hard. It's the life we live is kind of hard, kind of feeling like we're, you know, under the microscope all the time. Sometimes, you know, we get yelled at and we get treated a certain way. But once you realize like both sides of the coin, it's, this is a business of entertainment. And, you know, I was a super fan once upon a time. And so it's, it's fun to be able to appreciate that and to have that interaction with the fans and, and kind of look at kids who are being crazy and say, that used to be me, and, and have that kind of outlook. Are you someone who now always signs because of the fact that I'm sure there were some players who said no when you were a kid and, and that crazed fan? I think that there's, there, there's, a, there's some things to that. I, I try to sign as much as I can, but I also... I also have, because I used to be a quote-unquote autograph hunter, you know, I, there's there's some uh, hidden rules, you know, like if I'm on the field and someone's yelling, hey, 81, 81, or Thompson, or hey, you, hey, you, it's like, eh, am I going to really turn around and go sign for somebody? Or if they say, hey, Ryan, you know, that shows that they want my autograph. And that's something that I had to learn as a kid was that if I say, hey, Derek, hey, Derek, Derek Jeter's more likely to come sign because it's, it's more personable. It shows, it shows him that I want his autograph, not just some player. Stuff like that. And if we're on the road and let's just say we're in Seattle, someone's wearing a Mariner's hat, I'm less likely to sign. But if he's got a Rays hat in his backpack, he takes off the Mariner hat, put on a Rays hat, and he says, hey, Thompson, come sign. I'm more likely to sign. You know, there's little tricks like that that – that uh, I used to pull. So if I see somebody doing that kind of stuff, I'm way more likely to go out of my way to sign. Certainly makes sense. To get back to your dad, was he ever your coach growing up? And if so, what was that like? Oh, yeah, he was my coach. Every sport except football. I only played football a couple of years, but he was my baseball and basketball coach. He was my baseball coach from all the way from Little League. He actually was the president of our Little League for a while. And then he was my pitching coach in high school. And that was that was awesome experience. I mean, me and him, I think high school for me was a huge turning point because that was when I made the decision to try sidearm. My dad was always under the impression that it was bad for my arm, so I shouldn't try it. And it kind of got to a point where some college coaches were recommending it. And so we, uh, I was 16 years old, and we just kind of took it upon ourselves to learn this. You know, I've I practiced in the backyard over and over again, pretending to be Hung Bung Kim for the Diamondbacks. He was my favorite player when I was a little kid. And so I I knew how to do it, but it's a different thing playing wiffle ball versus getting people out in high school ball, you know, varsity high school. So uh, we would would go and we, we had this warehouse that just had just wide enough for us to put a portable mound in. It had a whole bunch of stuff like desks and just everything filled to the brim in this warehouse, but we could fit a mound in there and... Yeah, he he was just he would go in there and he would catch me. He would sit on a chair and he would have his catcher's glove with no gear. And as I tried to learn how to throw sidearm, and uh, so that was a big big point in my career. And he's he was uh, an amazing coach. And you know that's all that's always hard. You know having your dad be the coach, and I think that helped me. You know overall, just kind of have that balance of how do I be you know the team leader, but 
you know, not be the, the spoiled brat. You know, it's like you, you have to you have to work harder than everybody else because you know, there's more asked of you. So I think my dad being my coach really helped me as I went into college and really took those next uh, leaps and bounds into pro ball. So as you were drafted out of, as you went to Campbell University across the country, how difficult was it to do that? knowing how close you were to your dad it was really hard I think it was harder for him than it was for me he wanted me to play locally anywhere I could and I I went to Chemeketa Juco in um, Oregon for two years so I had that but um, there were a couple D2s a lot of D3s that wanted me in Oregon and my dad really wanted me to play there and I just really felt like division one gave me the best opportunity to play professionally and my dad was kind of 50-50 on that. He wasn't sure if a average D1. Back when I signed to Campbell, they were one of the worst teams in the country. They were like had like 14 wins the year before, and then they ended up winning 40 the year that I signed. But Western Oregon is a good program, and that was the school that he went to and played for a year, and he wanted me to play there. And I understand that, but I just felt like Division One and Campbell and the program they had, the culture that they had over there, the coaching staff they had, it just seemed like the perfect fit. And so... It was, it was hard, but at the same time, I was so excited to, you know, start that journey. I felt like getting away from home was a good um, test for myself. I feel like I've done that a lot in my life where I just kind of step outside my comfort zone because then that's how I know, you know, I try to learn what I'm capable of. You know, I, I, I live by a saying that, that applies in a lot of different ways. I say if you know what you're capable of, then you're living in a pit of complacency. And so... I like to never know what I'm capable of. I like to always push and try to try to find out more. I like to put myself in hard situations and see how I'm going to overcome. And uh, college was one of those times. I remember my first week on campus, we went through our hell week, and I, <laughs> I was not physically fit enough for that. I was not ready. I was not prepared. I was basically crawling on the track trying to finish the conditioning I could barely do the workouts in the weight room and I'd call my dad every day and I'd say dad I don't know if I can do this and he would just tell me say it's okay if you can't do it it's okay I understand and we just took it one day at a time and eventually I was leading the pack in conditioning instead of just like using my nails to try to get past the finish line so yeah it was it was tough but it it taught me how to be a man to to leave well, I also appreciate your openness and honesty at the end of the season, reading Mark Topkins' article, that you and, and Ryan Sheriff, too, um, have been open regarding mental illness. How important has that been? How has that maybe even changed the relationship with your dad? How supportive has he been? And how much have you heard from other athletes, too, about they're going, they went through some of the same things you went through last year? My dad's been supportive of me in anything and everything that I've ever been through, that I've ever decided. He's been my my rock he's been my he's just been my guidance through a lot of things like there's not a single thing in the world that I feel like I couldn't talk to my dad about even if it's something that I disagree with him he's he's that's just the type of human being that he is so yeah I mean what I went through last year had more so to do with my faith with my heavenly father than my earthly father I felt like a lot of things in my life had really distracted me from what's truly important which is you know, my future into heaven and into, you know, um, into, into seated next to, next to my heavenly father. And so, you know, that was a tough pill for me to swallow, to look, kind of look back on my past year and a lot of my life and say, man, like 
Like I've been prioritizing a lot of earthly things for um, and neglecting eternity. That was kind of kind of my moment um, that I had. So I think the year of 2020 did a number on a lot of people in a lot of ways. But I I do also think that it was good for a lot of people because you know when we're go 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 all the time when we're like have our jobs and our relationships and everything that's you know full blast it's hard to sit back and kind of evaluate where your life's at and i think 2020 was hard for people especially because everybody's life was put on pause and so all of a sudden everybody's like well now i have all this time to evaluate where i'm at i have all this time to kind of make new decisions for myself a lot of people lost jobs a lot of people had their life in uncertainty and so it's like well what do i do now if baseball's not happening this year then who am i you know a lot of things were tough for people and i think there's probably hundreds of baseball players that dealt with stuff this year that didn't talk about it and that's fine and I think the guys that did come out and talk about what's going on with them is amazing. You know, I think if we're going to talk about Ryan Sheriff, I think um, the worst thing he could have done is bottle it up. So the fact that he's open about it could potentially help other people for them to be able to vocalize what they're going through. And, you know, really, really what I think is amazing is just kind of taking the, uh, what's the right word, is taking the, the stigma, the stigma behind mental health. Every single person in their life, I, I can guarantee this, has some moments in their life where they battle mental health. And that's normal, you know, for somebody to, like, like I don't even like, like with, let's just say Ryan Sheriff, for example, for him to come out and for us to classify it as mental health issues for him to, you know, be going through something. It's like, no, he's, that's life. You know, he's, he's just, He's just dealing with his life, you know, like making Ryan Sheriff's uh, situation special is just because he's, it's rare for him to talk about it, you know. So I definitely encourage people to not make a bigger deal out of things that, you know, you're, you're going through something and that's awesome. Like, that's great. The worst thing that you could do is to pretend like you're not. You know, so the fact that you are going through something it allows you to be able to overcome and to be able to be the best version of yourself. And that's, I think, what it's all about is how can I be the best human being I can be for myself, for everybody around me, for my faith, for all the things that matter to you. So I'm, I'm proud of everybody that's come out about stuff they're dealing with. Well, here's to continuing to be the best version of you on and off the field. Enjoy Father's Day, and here's to a good moment maybe on the field with the Rays against the Mariners today. Ryan, thanks for some time. Thank you, Neil. Ryan Thompson with us. We'll continue right after this on the Rays Baseball Network. Welcome back to This Week in Rays Baseball. I'm Neil Solons. Time to chat about the week gone by. And joining me, Dave and Andy. And first of all, guys, happy Father's Day, and thanks for a few minutes. Thank you, and happy Father's Day to you as well, Neil. Same to you. This certainly has been uh, not a great week on the baseball diamond, so I'm sure it would be a much better Father's Day for all of us if the Rays could snap the streak and get a W. What stood out to each of you guys this week? Well, you know, like I, I just we just got done talking about it uh, with uh, Kevin Cash, and uh, you know, I think the biggest thing is is we're just not playing the Rays' way. We're we're, we're not pitching as well as we've uh, been accustomed to pitching here during this uh, stretch. We're definitely not uh, fielding at the elite level. 
that we've been fielding here for the past uh, for most of the year. I mean, maybe outside of the first uh, road trip of the season. Ever since then, the Rays have been uh, absolutely fantastic on defense. And then uh, the, the the lack of getting the big hit with runners in scoring position has kind of reared its ugly head here over the last few days. But, uh, you know, again, Andy, I think we're scoring enough runs to win more than uh, the zero games that we've won since uh, Monday. Uh, we, we need to get back to that uh, kind of run prevention mode that the Rays have, uh, again, utilized to get in the first place, to go on the run that they did. But like I also said, you know, you know me, guys, I'm Mr. Positivity. <laughs> if, if for every great month we have, we have to have one bad week, I'll suffer through that the rest of the way. Yeah, and, and look, the Rays aren't playing terrible baseball. They're playing uh, baseball good enough to win a couple of games. They've lost, uh, what, a couple, three in extra innings and uh, several on uh, walk-offs as well on this trip. So it's been a tough trip. But I'm always reminded when you go through tough moments like this, and you couldn't have convinced me about this last night at about 1 in the morning when they lost the game, but the more you think about it, you remember, okay, during the great winning streak, there were probably some moments where things could have tilted the other way and didn't. Maybe the Rays got an extra bounce, a defensive play, a play that another team didn't make, a key walk, an error. I think even last night, Kyle Seeger makes a diving play on Yandy Diaz, which could have started the sixth inning with a double, an inning where Margot later homered. That could have been a difference. Joey Wendell's fly ball goes to the wall. J.P. Crawford is a line drive that skims the top of the wall and goes out for a grand slam. So sometimes in this game, it just doesn't want to work your way. Uh, to me, you watch baseball, it's almost like some supernatural baseball guide is actually controlling him and saying, all right, we're going to let him get some breaks now, but not always, and it always does seem to humble you. One of the things that does stand out to me through this, this handful of games that the Rays have dropped now is the starting pitching, and it coincides with Tyler Glasnow's injury. I think the last four games, the starter has given up at least four earned runs or more in every single game. Coincidence? Guys trying to do too much? Just a bad rut? Bad matchup? What do you guys think? I'm concerned about it. I think it's a you go from having that guy that is your staple, your every fifth day. There aren't many aces in baseball, and he and Glasnow is an ace. You take that out, and then you've got a 41-year-old Rich Hill, a struggling Michael Waka, young guys in Fleming and McClanahan, and Yarbrough who's been uh, up and down. So I, I'm I'm absolutely concerned about it. At some point, I would think they're going to tap into some of the pitchers that can start games, maybe a Patino or AAA, but. Mark Topkins' column today in the Tampa Bay Times, Dave, really covered all angles of it. They don't tend to go out and trade for other teams' starting pitchers, especially rentals. But, um, you know, the Rays' window is open here. This is a time to win for this team. They just lost first place on this road trip, and uh, maybe no time like the present. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, and Kyle, I trust. I mean, you know, like I said, we look back at the beginning of this year and we wondered how this bullpen was going to perform without Nick Anderson. And then he didn't beat Fairbanks for a while, and Jazz Rowe went down. And, and next thing you know, we had a bunch of guys out there, and you're wondering, how are these guys going to get out? And then it, it just took a little while for everybody to kind of get things situated. And Kyle Snyder and company and Stan Borowski were able to settle things down. And next thing you know, uh, they went on quite the run. And this was uh, before Fairbanks came back. And, and so, you know, we, we've gone from having a couple of real power guys, though, in Glasnow and McClanahan to now just having a young McClanahan who's still kind of trying to find his way. And, and, and I think, Neil, you know, we're hearing a lot out of the clubhouse about that's baseball. And right now, you know, we found a White Sox team that was able to, you know, again, fight off some of those pitches that might have busted bats or might have been outs against other teams. But the White Sox really made a concerted effort to go the other way. And right now, you know, here's the case with the Mariners. Again, we've got some pitchers in this series, especially that are not high-velocity guys 
that are trying to come in and just right now aren't coming in enough. And, you know, yesterday you can say that uh, some of the guys on the Mariners were looking to go the other way. Jake Bowers got a big hit by going the other way, but there's no way he was trying to go the other way. He got blown up and was just fortunate enough that that ball fell in. So, you know, maybe a little bad baseball luck going on right here, coupled with some uh, good fortune for the Mariners. But, uh, again, I have a lot of faith in Kyle Snyder and company to get this done. And let's face it, I mean, Drew Rasmussen gave us a little peek as to uh, what's Mm -hmm. down in Durham. I still believe and I'm going to say this until we start seeing some of these guys, that there might be a couple of guys on the pitching side and a few guys on the offensive side that are as good as or maybe even better than what we have here, and I'm kind of anxious to start to see that here in the very near future. Okay, so that leads into something that I think was talked about either in late April or maybe it was early May, and it was when Rich Hill was struggling. There was talk about maybe the Rays are going to start getting really creative with their pitching. Do you start to see them maybe get really creative with their pitching without Glass now right now? Well, I, I just don't know how you do it, though. I mean, uh, you know, I think right now it'll be interesting to see what happens in this series against the Red Sox. Kevin Cash, as always, was kind of coy as to who is going to pitch. We know that Yarbs is going to be the bulk guy on Tuesday. We hear that Hill will start on Wednesday and then uh, question mark as far as Thursday. So, you know, maybe they will opt to go to some kind of an opener in front of Yarbs on uh, Tuesday night against uh, the the Boston Red Sox when they come to town. But, um, you know, they talked about getting creative when, uh, you know, the things were struggling at the beginning of the month. But I don't remember them getting all that creative. You know what happened? (laughs) Rich Hill got better. Uh, Shane McClanahan came up and pitched really, really well from the minor leagues in his first uh, handful of starts. Uh, Tyler Glasnow was Tyler Glasnow. We did uh, a couple of times go with an opener in front of Yarborough, and now he's back to being a starter and pitching okay. So all this stuff about getting creative, I I didn't really see it happen as much as I think they thought it would, simply because Rich Hill pitched well. And I think that's all it's going to take. This is one time through the order, as far as the rotation is concerned, where they had tough starts. People are going to have... I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm taking your call right now, Neil. There's going to be times through the rotation where they're just not going to pitch at the level we're accustomed them to pitch. Maybe next time they will. Andy? Well, I mean, I mean, Dave's right on it. The one real creative thing that they were planning on doing was when they were going to piggyback Rich Hill with Michael Waka. That was what it was going to be going through, and lo and behold, Hill pitches great, Waka gets hurt, and then Hill takes off for one of the best months of his career. Uh, and then, at, look, it, uh, after that, Hill has settled in. But I, the scary part for Rich Hill to me is uh, when he's sailing along in a game, then all of a sudden he seems to lose it all at once. Uh, at, that being said, uh, he has been so very good for the Rays. And you almost look to uh, him as, I can't say the, the person around which this rotation is based, but in the month of May he certainly was along with Tyler. I just don't know who is the base of the ro- of the rotation right now. Who was the guy that you look to to stop a streak? Guys are going to have to get better. McClanahan's going to have to get better. Uh, and I look for him to do that today. I think it's a very pitchable lineup for the Mariners. It's amazing to me how well they have hit and gotten some lucky hits too in this series. we got less than two minutes. One thing that also stands out this week is the extra inning defeats. Rays are now 3-7. and seven. How do you change that? Well, I, I'll say this, and I really do my best not to moan and whine about it on the air. I don't like the rule. I, I don't like starting runners at second base. But if that's the way it is, then you've got, you play it differently on the road compared to home. I think you've got to play for multiple runs uh, on the road, and you then deal with either one or multiple, whatever you need uh, when you're at home. I think one of the daunting things for this team right now, and especially in light of what the Mariners are doing, a team that has won, what, five of six to get to a game over 500. 
They are, are so good in one-run games, and they're so good in extra inning games. The Rays have been lousy in both. <laughs> the Rays are, what, 8-13 and 13 or something like that in one-run games, and they're, what, now 3-7 and seven in extras, and yet it's the Rays that have a way better record. Go figure out this game. With, with all due respect, and I said with all due respect, <laughs> that, uh, I, you know, you, you talk about playing for multiple runs as a visiting team. you got to get one before you get two. And, <laughs> right. you know, I, I think the Rays have to do – a better job of just moving the baseball. And, uh, you know, again, that's been a problem with this team uh, for most of the season. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily going to go away, but, uh, you know, in the last couple of games, the uh, last two or three games we've seen in extra innings, you've got an all-star first baseman in Jose Abreu who can pop the ball out of any ballpark just looking to pull the ball so we can get a man over to third base with less than two outs and give his team a chance to score a run. I, I think that, uh, you know, again, the at-bats the last uh, couple of extra inning games by Austin Meadows and Kevin Kiermeyer. We're not good enough in those spots. And, uh, you know, you can say all you want about playing for a couple of runs to put more pressure on the home team when they come up, but you, you just got to score one to make sure that there's pressure on the home team when they come up. And the Rays haven't been able to do that. So moving the baseball, making more contact. When the Rays were on the run that they were during the month of, uh, you know, May into June, they were doing just that. They have not been doing it here for the past week or so. It's razor thin. And I think, like Dave was saying, situational hitting is the way to get out of it. Well, let's hope for a good Father's Day with no extras today. Guys, thanks for helping me do my job. <laughs> Neil, your, your daughter's told us, can you help my dad on Father's Day do his job? And we just listen to the girls. That's what we're, that's what we're here for. Well, we continue on this week in race baseball, and we've talked about it. The Rays have had so many players performing well in their minor league system. And right near the top of the list is Garrett Whitley, who recently was named the uh, AA South Player of the Week. Uh, Garrett, thanks very much for a few minutes. Thanks for having me, Neil. Happy to be here. Tell me first what has allowed you to have the kind of success you're having, because at least to this point, you're having your best season, right? Yeah, yeah. I'd say most of it's just my approach to my at-bats. Um, I did make some like some physical adjustments over the over the quarantine and over the off season, and even since spring training, just to really be feeling feeling like me at the plate and and that sort of thing. And then I've been working with Nelly a lot on um, my approach at the play, the way that I look at my at-bats and yeah, really just, just overall my approach. So I'm ready to hit um, all the time. Obviously it's not like I wasn't ready to hit before, but it's just a different way of looking at things. And it aligns a lot more with, I think what my natural approach was to like back in high school and that sort of thing, which is pretty much, you know, I'm looking for the pitch that I want to hit right now. And, you know, if I don't get it and it's less than two strikes, then that's okay because I'm looking to do damage instead of just, you know, defending the zone early in the count and stuff. So that's, that's, he preaches that he believes that that's the best way to hit. And uh, I'm all in with it. I think it's great. And I love having the opportunity to work with him uh, this season. You're talking obviously about Jamie Nelson. And I know a lot of guys have praised him, Josh Lowe, uh, Nate Lowe, when he was here, Mike Brasso. Is it more, would you say of an offensive mind, offensive mindset? I wouldn't say not more of an offensive mindset per se, but it's just a damage mindset. Like a lot of people, a lot of coaches will like to preach staying on the fastball and adjusting to the off speed and Nelly isn't really about that he says stay on the pitch that you want to hit and if it's less than two strikes and you don't get that pitch take it and you go it's 0-1 or uh you know maybe you take it with one strike and you got two strikes and then you battle and then you approach you know his two strike approach I really I really like the way that he um, talks about hitting with two strikes too which has made me a lot more comfortable with two strikes I'm not 
not worried about getting to two strikes because I still feel really good in the box and really confident um, with two strikes. So um, it's just really early in the count. Everything is a damage count. Everything you're looking for the pitch that you want to hit in that count, it really does help you get your A swing off a lot more often than not. And from you mentioned you've you've improved physically too. What are the biggest changes from pre-pandemic to now? I've really tried to tap into who I am naturally. You know, I was uh, always making swing changes and, and I was listening to a lot of people and it's not saying that the things that they were telling me were wrong by any means and definitely worked for some people, but I don't think that they were working for me. What I've done really is try to just get back to feeling like me, feeling like, you know, approach-wise, or not approach-wise, um, set up and mechanically and that sort of thing, just just being Garrett Whitley again. Doing that has allowed me to cut down the swing and miss a lot. There's a lot less, you know, I'm I'm hitting the pitch, I'm hitting my pitch way more often than I'm not, and that's been the difference. And physically, do you think you're much different than the way you were before the pandemic? Are you stronger, quicker? What What's the biggest difference there? Physically, uh, I wouldn't really say that there's that much of a difference. I did put on weight during the pandemic a little bit, but I have managed to lose most of it since the season started. So <laughs> I'm back down to about what I was in 2019, like just above 200. But I feel strong. I feel fast. Um, you know, there's always physical adjustments and, and technique stuff with running and, and all that kind of thing that you can always improve on to get faster, get stronger, that sort of thing. So I have made some adjustments like that, but nothing like super drastic. How good has this felt to be playing regularly now? And how difficult was it for you the last couple of years? You went through the shoulder injury, then you got hit by the foul ball. I mean, you've had some pretty tough moments the last several years. Yeah, it feels great to be back. Um, and just playing, like you said, playing regularly. Last season, I had a healthy year. Well, 2019, I had a healthy year too. And then obviously 2020, like you said, I got hit in the face and that was just bad luck. Um, we wound up not playing, so I didn't actually miss any time. But just the injury thing is, it sucks because I want to be out on the field. I want to be improving myself uh, every day. And um, I mean, I just love playing baseball too. So like, that's the place where I feel comfortable is on the field. So it's just, it's been a lot of fun. Just trying to enjoy every moment of it. Chatting with you, you seem to be in a pretty good place. Do you think mentally you've also grown over the last several years too, where you seem to be in a, a real good place from an offensive standpoint, from you know, from an overall standpoint? Yeah, I definitely would say so. I had a lot of time to really work on myself and mentally, like you said, during the during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time at home um, with my folks and just being back home and really having a ton of time to myself because it wasn't like anybody was doing anything. I really had tried to take the time. I really took a lot of time to look into myself and, um, you know, just work on some, some Garrett stuff, you know? Are you doing a lot of reading? Are you doing a lot of, uh, are there books that you've used to kind of free your mind? Because I do think it's important to be able to let go of baseball when you're not at the field. And I'm guessing you're able to do that. Yeah, I honestly haven't been reading as much as I as I probably should be. Um, there's a couple books that I started to read over the over the last year and stuff, and then I kind of fell away from them. I, that is something I would like to be a little bit better at. But um, a lot of it really is just. I mean, I I guess I don't get a lot of my stuff from books, but I'm always trying to learn. Um, I'm always trying to listen. There's a lot of smart people out there. A lot of a lot of things that you know, meditation type stuff that sort of thing. A lot of things that can really help you tap into yourself. And, you know, when I see something that 
I think I would like to try, I give it a shot. And if it makes me feel good, then keep rolling with that, you know? Have you done all that on your own, Garrett? Because I know the Rays have like integrated now um, having coaches uh, like uh, Justin Sua uh, throughout the minor league system. Have Have you worked with anyone in the Rays minor league system that's been a big benefit? I have worked with Justin a little bit. Like during spring training, we were around each other and we had some conversations. And um, our our mental uh, another one of our mental coaches, mental strength coaches, was in town the past couple of weeks. Josh. He was here too, and he's great. They're both great. So, like, we'll talk, we'll have conversations, and that kind of thing. But a lot of it has been on my own. Like I said, I mean, really, like, I had so much time to myself over the pandemic that it was kind of like I could waste all this time, or I can try to improve myself during it. So I was doing everything that I could to to improve myself. And it sounds like you have. And getting back to the field, obviously, we've talked about the offensive game, but. Um, I've heard you've played really good defense and run the bases extremely well. Where do you think you've improved? Well, I do think I'm a better base runner now um, than I ever have been before. I especially feel better stealing bases because, I mean, I, could, I could, always could, but just the way – I don't want to say my approach because I've said that a lot, but um, really just my, my base stealing technique is different now because of something that our base running coach, um, Chris Prieto, told me i really like the way that he likes to set up to steal bases and it makes me feel really explosive so i i feel good with that and defensively i mean i i honestly i think i always play good defense so uh <laughs> so uh i'm just still trying to go out and to me i hate i hate it when a ball drops in the outfield so i'm doing everything that i can to to catch everything it's the mindset you got to have in this organization for sure we're we're glad that you're in a really good mindset overall and Great to see you performing so well, Garrett. Keep it up. Thanks for being with us on This Week in Race Baseball. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. That's Garrett Whitley. And coming up, a heartwarming story from Stan Borowski with daughter Sarah. You're listening to This Week in Race Baseball on the Race Baseball Network. Welcome back to a Father's Day edition of This Week in Race Baseball. I'm Neil Solons. As a dad of two teenage girls, I know firsthand how special that bond is between a dad and his daughter. But regardless of how you're connected, you'll appreciate the amazing, heartwarming story Ray's bullpen coach, Stan Borowski, and his 26-year-old daughter, Sarah, shared about her journey. You know, it's, it's funny how, after all these years, it's still really hard to talk about. <laughs> My wife was pregnant uh, with twins, had an amniocentesis. And since the twins uh, were in separate sacks, each of them had to have their own needle hole uh, for the amniocentesis. Uh, the amniocentesis hole for my son's bag never healed and but they didn't know that it's just it's going to happen one in a hundred thousand times that it's done but it happened when they noticed some amniotic fluid they put my wife in the hospital right away uh, knowing that if the amniotic fluid can leak out then bacteria can get in and when that happened uh, uh my son's sack got infected uh my wife uh, the fever just blew up inside of her. They had to rush her to OR. And uh, that was at 25 weeks of her pregnancy. And my son didn't make it. He was only, he only weighed 13, uh, 13 ounces. Sarah was the big one <laughs> at 15 and a half ounces. And they didn't even, they didn't even measure her in ounces. She weighed 440 grams. That night, they told us she wasn't going to make it. You know, so we were all as prepared as we could for the worst. Well, that, that night they said, if you believe in God, 
now is the time to go pray. Spent a lot of time in the chapel. But every day, you know, they kept preparing us. You know, she's too tiny. We don't have survivors this small. She's not going to make it. So just be prepared. And then every day that she made it, they'd say, okay, well, she has a 1% chance. Okay, but it's still very tiny. A week later, <laughs> they said, well, she has maybe a 5% chance, but she's just so tiny. Something is going to go wrong because it always does. Two weeks later, <laughs> they said maybe a 10% chance of survival, but even if she survives, she's gonna have a lot of problems. There's gonna be bleeding on the brain. There's gonna be eye problems. There is gonna be gastrointestinal problems just because of the way the body develops. They did brain scans on her uh, every other day to check for bleeding on the brain. And because they told us it's just gonna be a matter of time until it happens because it happened to all of them, but it never happened. Every day that they would take her for her brain scan, we would just like sit there and just pray. She's had five or six uh, laser eye surgeries uh, before she was a month old because of a, it's called retinopathy of prematurity because your eyes are the last uh, organ in your body to develop as a fetus. And when she was born, her eyes were still fused shut. That's how tiny she was. She had five skin graft surgeries before she was two months old uh, because what happened was when she was born she was fetal and she couldn't so when she was in the fetal position like her stomach and leg grew together uh, the back of her leg and the back of her calf grew together uh, the top of her foot and the bottom of her shin grew together just because the skin that was growing so rapidly that whatever it was against, it, it grew together. And the doctors uh, actually came up with some new procedures because of her, because they had never had this happen before. It didn't occur to them to straighten her out and maybe put her, her legs and stuff on some uh, like tongue depressors or something uh, to keep them straight, uh, to keep them off of each other. When they, they consulted the, they consulted the uh, skin graft surgeon, he said he remembers the first time he looked at her, he said that he would do it, but it never occurred to him that he would actually have to do it because there was, she wasn't going to make it that long. And then every time he would see her, well, here we go again, the little one that won't make it. She just kept making it over and over. Four weeks later, Sarah was improving, but Stan said she was not quite out of the woods. It was a little more apparent that she was actually going to survive, but it wasn't until about three months in that we were pretty confident that all of the all of the things that they said was going to go wrong didn't. Uh, at about three and a half months, uh, they moved her out of the NICU and put her into like the special care unit, which is like a step down from the neonatal intensive care unit. And then it was actually on her due date. She was born on December 23rd. Her due date was April 4th. Uh, on her due date, we took her home. But even then, yeah, they, <laughs> they sent her home with all these monitors and machines and medications and instructions for us how to do it how to work it she just kept fighting one day to the next to the next to the next uh, sarah obviously remembers little from that entire experience but there were points in her childhood that made it clear she wasn't quite like every other kid so my whole left leg is scarred because of that because of my eyesight i always knew that i wasn't quote-unquote normal um so i would say probably somewhere around 
like five, six, maybe when I started kindergarten, I started interacting with people, you know, I don't necessarily remember the story being told to me, but just, I remember my mom being like, okay, you know, like this is, this is it. This is, you know, you were made special and you just kind of, you know, got to roll with the punches sometimes because kids are going to be mean. And then I think when I got older, they, when I started to understand a little bit more and was able to comprehend the full story, that's when they told me. But I remember being pretty young. Now fast forward to the present and 26 years and change later, Sarah has accomplished more than you could have imagined. Graduated high school, honors, National Honor Society, uh, top 10% in her class, cheerleader, gymnast, graduated the University of North Florida, cum laude, with dual degrees, dietetics and nutrition and psychology, currently working on her master's degree in psychology, and is a registered dietitian at the Poinciana Medical Center. All this after telling us she wouldn't make it through the first night, then she wouldn't make it through the second night, wouldn't make it through the first week. What's funny is that every time Every time something would go wrong, her potassium levels would just jump out of control. Her oxygen levels would just dip out of control. Uh, they would rush the nurses around her and put these screens up around her. And these monitors are going off. The doctors would come back and say, we don't know what just happened, but it just kind of fixed itself because they didn't know, uh, they didn't know how to deal with all the different medications and how to, I mean, cause she was tiny, tiny. Uh, you could see right through her skin uh, it was like a translucent skin. We fed her, okay, she was like this water bottle, about that big, not quite as heavy as this, but we would hold her in our hand like this and hold it, had a feeding tube up here with the feeding tube down her throat. And that's how we would feed her uh, because there were no bottles were tiny enough. And then obviously her ability to use a bottle and that's how we fed her. They didn't have diapers small enough uh, so the tiniest diapers that they had, we could have wrapped around her four or five times. So my wife and I, in the times where we weren't allowed in with her, because, you know, they're in the neonatal units. I mean, they're very, talk about strict about getting in and out. My wife and I would take the, the, the smallest diapers they had and then take athletic tape and cut them into four different diapers and kind of take the edges and trim them around and tape them up so we could actually use them as diapers. So that's how we spent some of our spare time in the waiting room. Yeah, it was in it was in it was an incredible time. To Sarah, it's still somewhat surprising to see her dad that emotional about her amazing journey. Well, it's always kind of weird when you see your dad cry or even, you know, your parents cry because you look up to your parents, you know, and you don't really expect them to get emotional. And for me, it just kind of seems like not that big of a deal because science has it's always advancing it's always improving what was protocol yesterday is not protocol today so for me and especially working in a hospital you know I see like miracles every single day so for me I kind of it's kind of weird hearing about how how life-changing it was to not only my family but to science itself because they didn't have anyone go through what I went through prior to me. And so it's just amazing to think like what I went through, other children won't have to go through because I paved the way. Um, and that's just so weird 
weird to think about. And to Stan Borowski and Sarah, it's not a shock she ended up in the medical world. Yes and no. Um, I So I wanted to be a doctor. I audited a, phys- a physics class and I was like, mm, we're not going to do this. And I knew I wanted to work in the medical field. I knew that nursing was not for me. And I took a nutrition course in college and I just kind of, I was like, oh, this is easy. This is interesting. Um, and then fast forward to my advanced metabolism two class and I'm learning about the pathway of, of vitamins and minerals. And I'm like, oh God, what did I get myself into? But it's so, it's so interesting because I love how the two worlds of medicine and nutrition work together to create a plan to help better someone's life. So I would say indirectly, yes, I feel like I'm able to relate to patients and to doctors and and to family members a lot more if I didn't go through what I went through. I do not think that I would be as empathetic um, and caring and kind if I wouldn't have gone through what I went through because I kind of know what it's like to be in that in that position, not only because of the way that I was born, but I've had surgeries afterwards that I, that I can remember. And so I kind of know what it's like to be in that bed where you don't want to be. She's always been the one that cares about everybody else, wants to take care of everybody, wants to help people. No, it doesn't surprise me at all that she's doing what she's doing, making people's lives better. And as Stan reflects on Father's Day, 3,000 miles away from Sarah, his wife Carol, and son Clayton, there's a lot of good to reflect on. Just all the joy that they've brought me. You know, you think back of everything that you went through when she was born and just how worth it it all was. You know, just in the moment, it seems, you know, so hard and so difficult. Uh, but then watching her, you know, everything that she had to go through, you know, made what we went through to get her to that point seem uh, like a walk in the park with what she had to deal with. She's the toughest, she's the toughest kid I know. She really is. But at the same time, one of the uh, softest, most loving people you'll ever meet. It's a great combination. As determined a a young lady as you will ever find, which doesn't surprise me because she doesn't remember what she went through at the hospital when she was born. But if you don't have something special deep inside you, you don't get through that. And she has it. (laughs) You know, whatever that is. She has it. Sarah also thinks about her dad a lot on this day and how they're alike. I would hope that I get my um, sense of humor from my dad um, because he's actually pretty funny. And I think that I would, I mean, I feel like I would get my sense of logic from my dad. I always tell people that, you know, my dad's like a monk. He's one of the most level-headed people that I know. Very logical, very, um, very to the point, is able to... You know, look at like look at a picture logically. Sometimes I can't do that, and but then there are times that I can, and I'm like, oh, you know what? I got that from my dad. So I would definitely say, you know, being able to think logically and and, and critically is definitely something that I got from my dad. And I hope that I got you know the little sense of humor that I have from my dad. But yeah, so I would say, you know, being able to look at a situation logically would be something that I would hope that I would get from my dad. And they both think about how many other lives have been touched by what the Borowski family experienced. She was uh, she was actually the tiniest survivor out of the uh, Florida hospital NICU for years and years and years. They've since had some smaller survivors and good for them. That is so wonderful. But for many, many years, she was the tiniest survivor from that unit 
ever. But we're, we're just so happy for other families that they've advanced uh, and are able now uh, to save even uh, babies that are born uh, earlier and smaller than she was. But like she said earlier, she had a lot to do with how they are treating those babies these days, uh, as there were a lot of new medical notes being taken when, when she was going through her ordeal uh, at the hospital. Uh, very unique situation. When I was born, they didn't have dietitians on the units with the babies. Um, they, the doctors had a protocol written by the dietitians and the physicians would follow those protocols. So they didn't have a dietitian there every day monitoring the baby's tube feeding and their milk and their formulas and their ounces um, and if they're tolerating it or not. Um, and not. And since then, someone told me that a couple years after I was born, they started to have NICU dietitians on the units. To me, that's just so, so awesome. And I know a lot of NICU dietitians, and it is a whole nother realm, a whole nother ball game. It's certainly why this day really is a special one. Well, for me, just looking at that little girl right there, that's what it means. Her and her brother, they're, they're my world. I don't know. It's just a day where I can, you know, honor my dad because um, he does do a lot for our family. It's kind of like another birthday in a way. And so wherever you are and however you celebrate, so all the dads out there, happy Father's Day from Stan, from Sarah, their family, and ours as well. So appreciative for the chance to tell that story to you here on Father's Day. Thanks to Stan and Sarah Borowski. Thanks as well to Ryan Thompson, to Dave and Andy, to Garrett Whitley. If you ever have something you want to hear on the program, just tweet me at Neil Solons. Next week, Ryan Yarbrough and a whole lot more. Thanks to Derek DuBose. I'm Neil Solons. The pregame show is next. This is the Rays Baseball Network.